Hey, cool kids, welcome back to the Beat Motel podcast. It's Andrew here. Dr. Sam Page is in Helsinki enduring very hot weather, which isn't something you'd think about around Helsinki. We've got a special episode today. This is the first of one of God knows how many episodes where we're going to look at a piece of musical history, something that we think is unique and really interesting. And for this dive into a particular slice of history, I have a good friend of mine with me. Good friend, would you like to introduce yourself? I am Andrew's good friend. My name's Simon Finbo, and uh, we are bandmates in uh, These Are End Times. Nicely introduced. So, give you a bit of backstory on what we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about... Pink Floyd live in Pompeii. That's it. And the reason we're going to talk about it isn't very deep. It's I was flicking through YouTube, and somebody started a Pink Floyd in 4K channel and when i saw some of the footage first of all i was just blown away because it's it literally looks like it was filmed last week the quality is incredible but then i saw echoes the first part of echoes and pink floyd don't need an introduction i don't think but they are they loom so large in in the mind of probably most humans on earth but never really meant that much to me never really sort of really clicked with me I, I listened to dark side of the moon on your recommendation simon um after you recommended a pair of headphones to listen to them oh yes on. yeah yeah yes and i like that a great yeah, deal yeah, but yeah. I've, sort of, I've not really dived into it all that much but this this live in pompeii seeing echoes i was was quite taken aback so i thought let's do a podcast episode around echoes and why not okay so we'll just start with a bit of music and Simon has given me given me I think ten, yep, ten clips that we're going to work with, and I'm going to play the first one. I'm going to remind you what the title is, though, Simon. Don't worry, I'm not just going to throw them at you. And the title you gave me is "One of These Days, Doctor Who Bit." Is that all right as the first clip? If you want to, yeah, yeah, absolutely, okay, yeah why so not? One of these days, Doctor Who Bit. <laughs> So why Doctor Who? Oh, clearly, heavily influenced by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, I think, and particularly the, the Doctor Who theme. To me, that just, just reeks of... Really? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And in later incarnations of Pink Floyd, they actually did the kind of... Wow, 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 over the top in a kind of homage. See, I think that's... I, I generally think that's kind of... They, they borrowed bits and pieces from, from lots of different places. And uh, I think that's probably a direct lift from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. See, when, when you gave me that clip, I... I we, all of these are ripped from YouTube and yeah. listeners if you've not listened before for licensing reasons we can't use more than 30 seconds of anything so these these are ripped from YouTube and when you said it was the Doctor Who bit I genuinely looked at the footage and I looked at the sand <laughs> and the amphitheatre and I looked at the whole setup and I thought well I suppose it does look like something from Doctor Who because yeah. the camera's sort of lifting up very very slowly over the mixing desk At much higher production values than any doctor who episode obviously so uh, right let's 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 go back to the beginning then. Okay. That, that was our intro clip yeah. so what is live in pompeii is it live in pompeii or at pompeii it's at pompeii isn't it ah. i think you know it's it's it, the whole thing was almost a kind of happy accident from from what i understand andrew kind of maben who was the director uh, was from Cambridge originally, but living in France, was a big, big fan of Pink Floyd, particularly their kind of their, their kind of space rock. Uh, and at the time, Pink Floyd were dabbling uh, in lots of kind of European art house stuff. They were they were they were, they were doing soundtracks of ballets. They were doing 
they just soundtracked a film called More, um, which is a French kind of art film. So they, 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 they were actually they were a bit lost. They're, they'd lost their kind of their main band member, songwriter, and none of them knew how to write songs. So they were just in this kind of limbo of right, well, let's just do long, interesting songs. You know, they weren't particularly great musicians. You know, apart from Dave Gilmore, who who, who was a, who, who was clearly a kind of very gifted guitarist. The rest of them were just sort of muddling along, and that's accidentally they kind of stumbled upon this kind of formula of kind of space rock. It's interesting because we look look back on. I grew up in the same as you, late seventies, early eighties. Well, I'm still growing up now. Yeah, <laughs> we all are. Yeah, <laughs> and Pink Floyd were huge. Yeah, my like, biggest band, band in the world. Yeah. So it's hard to imagine that back in the early seventies they weren't. No, they're, they're very much a kind of underground band, just a heads band. You know, they were. If you went to any heads house, they'd hand you a joint, said smoke that and listen to this, you know, and that that was kind of that was most people's introduction to Pink Floyd. You know, just to be clear, Simon doesn't remember that. He wasn't. <laughs> he's not old enough to actually. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> oh, but I remember back. That's in true. There. Back in the day, you know, uh, back at Woodstock. Uh, no, but I think it's yeah. They were very much a kind of people talk about people dismiss them offhand. You know, I, I think they're genuinely. I think they're the most influential band, other than the Beatles, that, that, that there's ever been. And when I say influential, I mean that their, their, their cast is so wide. There's a big difference between Seminal, which is bands like AAM, you know, and Velvet Underground, who at the time people, yeah, at the time three or four people bought their records and mm. listening to them. Pink Floyd had this kind of, they married the kind of weird with the lyrical and the beautiful, and and sort of sold it as this sort of experimental kind of sandwich, you know, that people could digest easily. Um, and I think if you look at all the bands over the years that have been influenced by them. Many like even people like Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, all cite them as, as as a kind of major influence. You can hear it a lot when when you listen back, and and one of the things I really like about the the ability we have to discover more music now than ever before is you can hear a, a, a song and think, "Wow, that's really original," and then some bastard tells you, "No, actually, it's just somebody <laughs> ripping off this." That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And we have got a bit of that later coming on. Yeah. So if if you like that kind of thing, stick around. So, so basically, a director approached Dave Gilmore mm-hmm. and said, Let, "Let's make a film." Mm-hmm. Where did the money come from? If they weren't a, a successful band, was it? Oh, I can't. I can't was it Arts Council funded? Was it funded by? I really don't know, actually, Andrew. Where, where did the money come from? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. No? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I assume they, 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 they'd uh, maybe the, the record company had put something forward, possibly. They're on know? EMI, weren't they? They were on EMI. That's so, right. So um, at that time. I think EMI didn't really know what to do with them at that point. Uh, they weren't; they were selling enough records to be steady. You know, they they were just about to release just be- after this came out. They were just about to release Medal, which was their kind of their sort of gateway, which echoes is, is a which we'll talk about later mm-hmm. is, a, is a key part. Um, but I, he, I, the, the story is that the director wanted to do something with them. Uh, there were several meetings that took place. All of which people said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll do it," and th- things fell by the wayside. And he was on Andrew Maven was on holiday in Italy, and um, got to the airport, and there was a mishap with his passport. Couldn't find his passport, or something had gone, but there was something wrong with his passport. So he had to hang around. So he decided to go to Pompeii, uh, or the amphitheatre in Pompeii, in the evening one night, and, and just had this kind of this this moment of, "Oh my God, this is this would be perfect." And I think the whole his high idea was that concert films up until then, Woodstock, you know, 
um, the Rolling Stones movies. They'd all very much been about the kind of interaction between the band and the audience. And Pink Floyd had always been a kind of um, shrouded in mystery. No one really knew when they performed. No, you couldn't really see them. You know, they were performed behind these kind of uh, inkjet kind of um, uh, light shows, etc. So yeah, they were completely faceless, really. So that seemed the perfect way to present them. You know, and they're kind of they had this futuristic at the time what they called space rock you know which I'm sure that is a term they hated <laughs> um, but many people didn't know how they got they were they were cutting edge people didn't know how they got their sound you know and uh, and it was a perfect way to kind of to marry the kind of ancient with the kind of new you know almost in a kind of sunra orchestra way I guess do you know what I mean it seemed, seemed like the perfect thing well, one of the things that really surprised me about about watching echoes I think in particular is that it's so rudimentary. Hmm. They they had, I think, an eight track. That's right. They did. And I think you and I, well, probably have recorded eight tracks at some point in our lives because we're, we're not that young. But to get that kind of sound from an eight track is yeah. phenomenal. It so is. they don't have banks of processing equipment. Nope. Uh, you know, describe the scene in the amphitheater. Well, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's a completely empty amphitheater. Sand in the middle, you know, uh, it's a typical Roman amphitheater, as you can imagine. And the, the film starts with just this great pan in. It's, it's an overhead shot. The band are right in the middle of the amphitheater. You've just got a bank of amps, you know. Um, you can't even see the film crew at that point, which must be hovering around. But it's this really, really, as they're starting echoes, this really slow pan in, almost imperceptible, you know. Mm. And then before you know it, you're kind of centered on the drum kit and, and echoes are kind of kicking off. But it's just, it's completely desolate, isn't it? You know, it's, it, there's, there's, there's so, nothing around. There's you know? so few mm. crew there yeah, as well. That's it's, right. Because I think they, it's their touring rig they took. That's right. So it's not like they they built a stage. Well, no. there is no stage. There's no stage. No, <laughs> there right. isn't a stage. No. We're used to seeing bands on stage with amps behind. Uh, what's called Euro Trust, the trussing that you, that goes up and over the band, something behind them, even Woodstock, like the Woodstock film, which is pretty rudimentary. The sound systems they still had stages. Yeah. Whereas kind of. There's one point in in the film where Dave Gilmore's he's just sat in the sand, yeah, and he's got like pedals and stuff. Yeah, not, not many, many pedals. No. Again, like he's got. Uh, I'm not going to be too much of a geek, but it's a, a wild wire, I think. And uh, no, it's a very flex. I think yeah, it's called something like that. Yeah, uh, that's it. There, there is no the the mixing desk, which is actually tiny compared to what you'd even see in a pub gig now. I think there's like two or three kind of sound text there yeah yeah, yeah. And, and they they are there at pink floyd's insistence they were just going oh, to, really? yeah 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 they, they they insisted on it being recorded through an eight track i think they were just going to record it with a few mics mm. do you know what i mean live sound and maybe or maybe overdub it afterwards and pink floyd no 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 we want to do it live absolutely and i think it is completely live but i think it's I mean, the, the editing must be extraordinary because some of some of those tracks are done in parts, apparently. These different takes. Yeah, I was but, really surprised. But yeah, by but it. I had no idea because it flows beautifully. And with the kind of rudimentary editing technology they had, and there was no, you couldn't digitally alter sound or anything at the time. So to put piece that together the way they have is, is quite extraordinary, actually. Um, the, that, the editing of the whole thing is is interesting. I think not not just from a sound perspective, but also for from the perspective of, of how it looks. Mm. Because one of the things that surprised me reading up on it, and um, listeners, I only read up a little bit because I, I wanted to sort of, I wanted to learn. <laughs> Part of the joy of this, these kind of episodes <laughs> is learning about things. But one bit that surprised me, if you look at the Wikipedia page for this film, it talks about the director taking the film home to edit it at home, 
And then there's a little note saying, which he didn't want to do because he was trying to maintain a work-life balance. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, that, yeah. what an odd thing. <laughs> yeah, but right. we think now of editing, uh, yeah, where I'm, where I'm sat now, I do, I do, you know, I edit footage and it's all a computer. But yeah. you think, no, you could edit, what, 30, it was 35 mil it was shot yeah. on, wasn't so, it? Yeah, it would have been like a tape machine, wouldn't it, effectively? Well, yeah, it, from, no, yeah, more, yeah, more basic yeah, than that. Right, yeah. Editing could, could be as simple as two reels with no motors or anything. Yeah. And you're, you're pulling the film through with just a little projector it could just be projecting onto a wall like a few feet wide mm -hmm. and then when you don't like a bit you get a, a razor out and you cut it and you stick it back together so just the i just love the idea that it was some bloke at home yeah like <clears> saturday <throat> afternoon while his kids are playing on the lawn sort of editing a fucking film yeah it's absolutely wild yeah and also i mean the the, the thing is i had not seen it for years Probably, I haven't watched it for 20 years. Did you watch the four? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've seen it twice actually. Uh, right. Yeah, once, once because I want to do a bit of research for this and kind of refresh my memory, and also just this morning, just for sheer enjoyment. I loved it so much. Um, and it, it wasn't until I'd read a little bit about it that I had no idea that most of it was actually shot in Paris and not yeah. shot in Pompeii at all. And and that, that's completely obvious now because you can see the, the back projection and you can see them all, you know, in half of it, Rick Wright's got a beard and the other half he hasn't, which should have been some sort of a giveaway, well, I guess. There's loads <laughs> yeah, of continuity there is. Through, throughout. And they're it. wearing shirts in some, they're not wearing shirts in others. But cleverly, the the Paris shots appear to be shot as, as if they're at night. There's some little bit of lighting behind mm. them, you know. So it almost, it's almost, it could be that half of it was shot in Pompeii during the day and the other half was shot in Pompeii at I, night. I assumed that's what it yeah, was me too. until i first saw it but i couldn't figure out why for something filmed in october 1971 how they were getting such a good chroma effect you know such like a, a, a an um, chroma has been about for you know green screen stuff it's been about for years and years and years but it took really until the 2000s for it to be completely neutral yeah. you know for you not to be able to tell mm. so i was like how are they getting this perfect black backdrop on them when they're basically in a dusty amphitheater. I was just thinking even just ambient dust yeah, and yeah, like yeah. gusts of yeah. wind and you know you almost you know, bales of dry vegetation rolling. Like, <laughs> yeah. How have they done that? Yeah, and then found out it's something called transflex. Is it transflex? Yeah, yeah. and it's a back projection, isn't it? It's yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and they they were really really unhappy with it at the time you know but I think, oh, I think Paris it, footage yeah yeah with, well, with the particularly the transflex stuff but they, they were just it was too late to do anything else so mm. they, they thought I would go with it but I think it really adds to the charm of the of, of, of the thing itself you know it's um, part, part of the charm for me is that in 1971 cool in bands being cool in bands was very much a thing you had Led Zeppelin stuffing armadillos down their trousers yes. and you know being like the big rock gods you know Robert Plant just you know, bare-chested and barely wearing a thread and even like Ozzy Osbourne they had a, a days of the whole yacht rock thing you know bands like the Eagles were starting to be pristine and polished and you mentioned a minute ago that the half the band have got their tops off for for some of the film and it's not like they're buff no, no. <laughs> it's like, it's like yes. the least the least kind of glamorous looking blokes with their tops off they look exactly what you'd expect a bunch of art house musicians yes they do have never lifted anything heavier than a guitar yes, absolutely to look but i like that because it's for for any accusations that later pink floyd might have leveled at them about being pretentious i don't think live and pompeii actually is pretentious no 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 no, not at all i don't think so and 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 and, and 
if it is, it's certainly no fault of Pink Floyd. You know, I think any kind of pretensions that are on it would have been from the director. But but I, I kind of I can I totally get the director's vision. You know, there, I don't think there is any pretense. I think he's thought, let's let's put the future with the past. Mm. You know, and, and intertwine those two things. And make, I, mean, I think they went to the Naples Archaeological Museum and filmed a load of the mosaics there. Well, I think the, the version I've seen. Yeah. That, <clears throat> The, you know the one on this 4k channel which we will we will link to in the show notes that version but i know there are other versions that have like bits from the Apollo, Apollo space program in it oh itself. yes yeah possibly yeah, yeah yeah i think there was there was a later one i've not i've not seen that i, I think it's like you know, 2004 or well, something I, I, I don't, pink floyd soundtracked the apollo space landings for bbc one i don't know if you know that what yeah no i didn't know yeah, they, that. They, they, they played live alongside <laughs> the Apollo, yeah, apollo, yeah apollo space landings for the bbc I think in, in end times we tried to do some sound tracking stuff and, and we all just stopped playing and we were just watching the film on the wall. <laughs> we were like, yeah, yeah no, that's not going to work for yeah. us. Yeah, what is extraordinary is that the BBC clearly thought the space landings weren't amazing enough that they <laughs> somehow they needed a soundtrack, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, whether they, it was live or whether it was after, but they, they certainly did some soundtrack stuff for the for the around the Apollo space uh, uh, moon landings anyway. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. It's um, there's, I think there's about four different versions. I think Andrew Maven's currently working on another version to, to bring out, presumably. I mean, what, what is extraordinary? It's his pension, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing is, what, what's kind of... I don't think the band are that bothered about it, if I'm being honest with you. The same as they, they, they hate the wall, you know. Any kind of thing that they've not had 100% artistic control over... They tend to kind of dismiss. Is that why? <clears throat> I just assumed Pink Floyd were like that about some things because they didn't want to be wholly defined by a thing by like one point in their career because they're, they're, I mean, pretty varied. Saucer full of, it's all, I can't say it, it's got too many S's it's in it and I haven't got enough teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From, from that to, to, I just assumed that they wouldn't like the older stuff. No, like Wire, or like Wire. If you go yeah. see Wire, Wire never play anything. So it's not that. I, I, I don't think so. I think, I think they, see, this is my, this is my, None of my favourite albums are from this period of Pink Floyd, but this is my favourite Pink Floyd period, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, things like Echoes, Careful with the Axe Eugene, you know, they, Careful with the Axe Eugene is, is post-rock, you know, before post-rock was a thing, you know, it's post-rock, pre-rock, pre-post-rock, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, I think as they kind of, they, they were embarrassed about this, really, because they just saw it as a, them four men, Flounding around, not really knowing how to write songs, you know, and just trying to make a living doing the best they can. I, I want to but, kind of focus on that because one of the one of the the precepts that we have at the Beat Motel podcast is that we never want the li we never want to assume the listener has all of the backstory. Yeah. So for for the relevance of some of the things we're talking about, like them floundering a bit and not really knowing what it is. I can see that if I was listening to another podcast about another band, and I, I wouldn't know why that is. Yeah. So could, let's just let's just step back a bit okay so there is a missing member of course yes so t tell us tell us what happened well so, uh, so effectively um pink floyd formed as this band sigma nine they were they were they were that the, there was four of them and they're all architecture students and they then uh bumped into a guy called sid barrett who was a year younger than them who they was a local Guy, a beautiful looking guy who wandered around Cambridge uh, and he joined the band and then let, renamed them the Pink Floyd Sounds, right? That's what they originally called. But Sid Barrett was a 
was a kind of genius, maverick kind of songwriter, you know, despite the fact he hadn't been writing songs for very long, very young, art, he was an art student as opposed to an architecture student. How old was he? So oh, oh, when they first, oh, my, my word, 18, 19? Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, very young. Um, and then they um, uh, played a few gigs around Cambridge, but they quickly became uh, this kind of space, the sort of British answer to kind of psychedelia. You know, they kind of everything he was writing was was very kind of British in counterpoint to the kind of American psychedelic movement, and they quickly became uh, the in-house band for this club called the UFO Club uh, in, in in London, which was a kind of a club where people used to go and take acid. Mm-hmm. And just they used to have these twenty-four hour kind of freak outs, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, what they called in this underground place called the UFO Club. So they became the in-house band for that very quickly. Um, Sid Barrett was seen as a kind of a bit of a god to these kind of people, and uh, was hanging out with the wrong crowd, and effectively was living in squats. And they were giving him acid and his tea all the time. And this, this two, this two. Without him knowing. Uh, yeah, without him knowing. Um, and there's been there's, there's there's loads of different stories. There's stories from people who worked with him after that, and kind of said that really he just didn't want to be a pop star, you know, and he wanted to step back from all that. Pink Floyd saw that very differently. They saw a person who wasn't after having so much acid, just wasn't operating as a normal human being. So mm-hmm. he would, they would go to gigs, and he would just stand at the front not even playing yeah he was the front man and occasionally he'd just play a little bit and sing a bit and occasionally he wouldn't and just stared see i never figured that he was the front man because again i i'm really viewing pink floyd through the lens of having grown up in the 80s and 90s and seeing this band well where even as a kid thinking well sometimes this guy's the lead person sometimes this guy's the lead person and then for reasons we'll go into later in, in Love Pompeii, there's whole massive chunks just looking at the drummer. Yes, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. No, I never really twigged that Sid Barrett was the leader. So he, he did everything. He wrote all the songs, you know. Uh, on the, their first album, Pipe the Gates of Dawn, there's only one song written by Roger Waters who would then become sort of the driving force of Pink Floyd from, from Dark Side onwards. You know, everything was very much his kind of concepts. Um, but they were, without Sid, I mean, effectively what happened was they drafted in Dave Gilmore uh, to cover for Sid. They wanted Sid to be a kind of uh, a sort of stay-at-home songwriter because he just didn't want to play live, like uh, the, like Brian Wilson. Yeah. you know and that was that was the idea. Um, so they drafted Dave Gilmore, and he was a, a he was in a band called Joker's Wild in Cambridge, who were having moderate success, nothing like the success Pink Floyd were having. Um, so by this point, Pink Floyd had already had a couple of hits: See Emily Play, um, Arnold Lane, had, 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 uh, and then one. That, there was a, a, a bit of a tour after Piper Gets a Dawn around the UK and Sid just wasn't functioning. So they quickly drafted in Dave Gilmore to cover for Sid, just to come on. And for, for a while, they briefly, they were a five-piece. Or like a session musician. Yeah, effectively, yeah. He, he, would, he, he was Sid standing. So if Sid could, didn't sing, he would step in and sing. You know, if Sid didn't play, he'd play. And they did a, about three or four gigs like that. And the story is... Apparently, they were going to some gig in Northampton or something, and they said, should we bother picking up Sid? And they went, nah, let's not bother. Oh, really? And off they went, and that, that was it. They didn't really ever see him again until, very famously, later on during Wish You Were Here, which we'll cover in another podcast one day, <laughs> maybe. Uh, that's quite a story. But yeah, so they... they yeah, he they, turns up in the studio. He does, oh, yes. I went to add on it That's, that's right, yeah, he absolutely different, does. Different era. While they're writing a song about him. Um, but they... 
so they were, you know, Sid was their main creator. He, he did everything, right? So for, they, there was a few singles that followed after Sid left, like Point Me at the Sky and they were just kind of, they, they, they sounded like their own cover bands, you know, mm. all the, the charm and the genius that had been in those early kind of records had gone and they were just, so they just thought, well, we, we can't really do that. We can't write songs. What can we do? So there was a track on, you know, there's Interstellar Overdrive, which they were famous for, which is a big wig out from the first album. Saucer Full of Secrets from the second album, which is just a kind of, you know, really experimental kind of instrumental track. And none of them felt comfortable being front men. So that was what they did. They, that, and that, that kind of lent the sort of movie soundtracks and soundtrack in the ballets and then eventually to Pompeii. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting because it's not a band at their height no, making some statement. It's no. not, it's not, I'm trying to think of a good thing. Radiohead did a, a famous gig in Mojave Desert or somewhere. You know, bands that have done this, or like Queen at Wembley Stadium, you know, it, it wasn't like, hey, we've arrived, this is us in our pomp. It, it was a bunch of essentially art students. Absolutely, or architecture students, yeah. Noodling away in an amphitheatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, what they were famous for is their light show. And this is them filmed live. There's not a lot of lights. There's no there? lights. Yeah, there, there's a few spotlights, isn't there? You know, in the Paris footage, that is it. There's no lights. Well, now, I wonder, having having learned a bit about the setup of it, whether... I don't, I, I'd like to know whether they intended there to be lights or not. Because... Oh, excuse me. There was a problem with... There was a problem with uh, electricity when when they got to when they got to Pompeii oh yes of course yeah they um they'd made a few preliminary inquiries about the site and were reliably informed that all the power was there and was, and was actually working uh, Roman Roman's not known for <laughs> no, I mean, they did power. many things some of their roads are still standing but their electrical equipment <laughs> they yeah they, they hadn't quite made that yet um uh, but they yeah famously turned up on site with all their gear went to plug in none of the power worked so they were there, they only had six days to film this thing. And the first two days were spent trying to run power from the nearby village via a very long extension yeah, lead yeah. <laughs> from the mayor's office, I yeah. believe, uh, to the site. So they could actually, they could actually begin. And, that, and that's uh, originally, the, 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 that's why there's now only three songs that were recorded there out of the original, what were meant to be seven. Uh, yeah, was meant to be more. Yeah, yeah, there were meant to be more. Uh, so they had, but obviously they lost two days filming because there was there was no power. Um, presumably the setup there, you know, if, if Pink Floyd were to play somewhere now, they'd be there three days before just setting up the lights. Well, they'd have a generator. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's no. right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, um, so yeah, no power. So that that wasn't a great uh, a great start. And then they did, I believe, originally, Echoes wasn't meant to be. Or one of these days weren't meant to be on the on on the, on the uh, recording at all. Uh, but the manager turned up, I think, the night before the first day's shooting, with a, a, a copy of Medal, which was to be their next album. Mm -hmm. I said, right, we've got to do Echoes. Uh, so Andrew Rambis, well, I've not planned to do Echoes, I, 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 I but a deal was struck where they would would do Echoes and they'd do it in two parts, um, and also one of these days. Uh, so they shot, I believe, those. They brought, they shot those three tracks. One of these days, careful with the Axe Eugene, and Echoes Part One and Two. Um, 
And then they were going to go off and shoot around Mount Vesuvius, uh, but they got stuck behind uh, some religious parade uh, traffic for a day as well. So they lost a day's filming <laughs> on the way to him. Uh, it was Our Lady of the Mount or some, some kind of a Catholic uh, parade, I think. Um, uh, so yeah, they lost a day's filming there. So yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it wasn't quite a disaster, but things didn't exactly go to plan on the shoot at all. So yeah, when by the time the film was ready to come out, they weren't all excited and, and holding a, hosting a big premiere in the... No. In the Leicester Square and, and no, 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 no. How, how was the film received? Like most things, Pink Floyd released at the time, pretty hot and cold. I think there were some people who who absolutely who loved it, um, and some people who just didn't understand it and, and didn't like it at all. Thought, I mean, I think Roger Waters described it as uh, it's just uh, even at the time, it's just us walking around some mountains with some cool top of the pops type visuals. <laughs> you know, I think because um, some of the obviously the video effects. Even though they were kind of state of the art, then look very rudimentary now. You well, know, especially having four K. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I think know? it's charming. Um, though. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I love it for that. You know, and you don't want you don't want anything anything more than that. It's exactly how it should be. It should be a relic of its time. You know. Um, but yeah, I don't think I think there's, there's always been your lovers and your haters with with Pink Floyd. People don't tend to go. Oh, I think they're all right. They can love them, or, or they or they. The thing that surprised me is that I looked up what the industry reviews were and quite sort of high level well there's a hollywood reporter i think it's called so quite quite high level hollywood titles magazines really really liked it and i think it's it's really surprising because you mentioned before the the band films that came before so you've got gimme shelter yeah. which is obviously has you know, the grim ending and but it's, it's on the crowd and you know other films and then you've got the absolutely batshit crazy stuff like 200 motels by frank zappa which is just like what is just what's happening there so i would have expected the the reception for this to be quite muted mm. there, there's not really much in it compared to 200 motels by frank zappa it's not like you can go oh that bit where no like, no Ringo no, no. star goes on about getting out some pussy yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah, no yeah. sort of like yeah. but 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 that's that's what pink floyd were is the it was the music you know, they 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 were, they were pretty shy, with the exception of Roger Waters, who's who a very kind of you know, aggressive kind of uh, alpha male. Was he really? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he still is. You know, he's um, he's he's uh, a, a, a bit of a tyrant. You know, really. By as most kind of, I mean, most people who take the reins creatively. For a group of people can, can become like that, you know, and kind of and, and, and are like very dictatorial, you know. And I think he's. I mean, it's very well documented later on how much of a, you know, he basically said that, that they did nothing, you know, from, from sort of from animals on, it was all me. I, I did it all, really? you know. That's that's what, and I would counter that with, you know, listen to your solo stuff, mate. I think we can we can all see. <laughs> <laughs> how much the rest of the band did you know because without Gilmore's guitar you're, you know, yeah, your ideas are, are nothing there's a quote in the uh, which must be apocryphal but there's a quote in the um, the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody where Freddie Mercury goes off does his solo stuff and he comes back and Brian May says how was it he said oh we've got these musicians they did everything I told them and <laughs> yeah, I think Brian May yeah, goes yeah. yeah that was the problem yeah, wasn't yeah. It? <laughs> absolutely that's it absolutely um but yeah, I have to say that they've never really been these kind of. They, it's never been about them, you know. I mean, they, yeah. If you, you look at 
Dark Side. Look at all their albums. They're not on the front covers of any of their albums apart from the first one, you know, where it's, it's, it's a picture of them where they probably just did whatever EMI told them to do, mm. you know. But since they've had creative control, you know, there's, there's, it's been these iconic covers, you know, and you, you sort of, I mean, I don't even think there's a picture of them on Wish You Were Here or Animals or anything, you know. It's just they, they're very much a kind of people didn't really know what they looked like, mm. you know. Um, Let, let's have another clip. You, you mentioned. Yeah before about Sid Barrett being kind of quite a maverick and and kind of just just being quite 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 rot there's words in there somewhere uh being quite wild and one of the things I'm interested in is after Sid Barrett was was no longer a part of it obviously they were still playing songs he wrote I guess yeah yeah so I'm interested in whether the remaining band members were trying to mimic Oh, some of his wildness and, and quite often when when people try and do that a lot gets lost in the translation so i'm going to play a clip that you gave me and i've got it labeled as eugene scream okay yeah, yeah so i'm going to play it and then i'd like you to explain why you chose this as a clip Before you explain, now you start explaining it. The doors just opened for some reason, so I'm just going to go shut that. So why, why did you choose that? Well, I picked this because it's 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 a, it's a great moment in the film. First of all, it's kind of you know you've got Roger Waters over this kind of this 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 big mic, you know, screaming his heart out while Mount Vesuvius kind of explodes behind him. But also, it's it's been kind of emulated later on by 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 people. I think. There's a, there's a um, musician called Blixer Bargeld who was uh, the front person of Einstein Neubauten, but was also guitarist in Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds for many many years. You know, creative partner of Nick Cave, oh, nice. um, and this is this it's a very similar scream that is his kind of trademark vocal kind of tick, you know, which he does on a lot of Neubauten stuff, and he does it on a track uh, at the end of Stagger Lee, which I think I've got a clip of as well. Uh, which which basically lifts Eugene Scream uh, f- effectively. I've got I've got a clip which I titled "Screams Nick Cage." Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> so, that's right. Yeah. Let's play that. <laughs> well, you know, we're having fun, and then this was a scream. So yeah, the similarities there. You right there, Andrew? Yeah, no. So I'm yeah. just 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 che- just checking, <laughs> just checking. It's still recording. Okay. Yeah, the similarities there are are, are, are kind of pretty stark. I think you know. Um, I've not heard a scream like that before. And, and to be honest, that's Blix's scream. You know, um, very very similar. It, but it seemed massively out of context yeah. when, I, when I first when yeah. I first saw it. Yeah. But yeah, but it's it, it, even listen to those two clips. It's it's almost almost the same piece of music, I think. Do you know mm. what I mean? It's kind of it's quite extraordinary. Talking of which, uh, as I said before, about this band being a massively influential, and probably this film being more influential than than people realise, because there's a band called the Young Gods, um, and if you were to play, I think I've I've labelled a track. Young Gods summarise. I've got labelled here.
Labelled as Young God's bit, so Simon just lets know if it's the wrong clip. I nosed up the end. <laughs> that's fine. But I mean, that, that's, that's, that, that is clearly a, a kind of direct lift, you know. It's, 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 a, it's a homage rather than mm. a kind of... Than a, I think if you listen to that entire summarised track, that they clearly thought we want to do echoes mm. in our own way. I don't know what if you know what much... What year was this? Oh, Young Gods, Niall, my word, now you're asking, 90... It's 91. It's 91, is it? Okay, right, 91, know. yes, 91. <laughs> but they are not a band... That you would say, oh, they're influenced by Pink Floyd's, you know, but they they clearly were, and cl- clearly probably from watching live in Pompeii. I mean, that the, 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 their setup is completely different in that they had a drummer and a guy pl- on samples and keyboards and a singer. That was it. There's no guitarist in the band. There's no so all those so- sounds are made by which sound now sounds pretty de rigueur and normal mm. but at the time was completely revolutionary there was no I don't think it was any other band who had a live drummer and, and played samples no, just you know. hearing that I wouldn't have guessed that yeah no no absolutely so whether that, that bit is made up of samples of echoes the keyboard break certainly is it's a direct sample but it's just it's, it's, it's just a, uh, an example of, of, of the influence they've had I think over acts that you necessarily wouldn't think they'd influenced mm. no fascinating stuff so let's have a look we've got got loads of stuff for echoes but let, let's start with set the controls for the heart of the sun so let me know why you, let me know why you chose this clip this is this is one of my sort of favorite pink floyd songs from this kind of era and i think this is this this for me is this is up from their second album and this is where they really kind of discovered a formula i think that, that could work and this is them kind of I just and this is when it comes in. It's just the the, the opening vocal. Little by little, the night turns around. Counting the leaves which tremble at dawn. Lotuses lean on each other and yearning. And that's you know that's that's set the controls for the heart of the sun that says it all you know it's kind of it's space rock you know it's kind of it's it and it evokes space flight and it evokes to me do you know what i mean another worldliness you know that that, that, that they kind of encapsulated catch encapsulated at this time i, I think sonically there's, there's also it's almost so like a bridge from the much older pink floyd stuff yeah to the the stuff that then became you know the insanely yeah. massive popular that's, albums. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's got yeah. like the slight naivety and slight. It's like it's slightly unsure of itself. Yes. Whereas we see things like Dark Side of the Moon, yes. it's all surety. It's tentative, isn't it's it? It's hitting one note. Yeah. No, whereas yeah, but I'm, I'm I'm pleased you chose that. I think it's a, a nice example. It's, it's a great. It's a, it's a great song. I think I think many people dislike Pink Floyd because they, they it's, all they know is Shine on You Crazy Diamond or they know Dark Side of the Moon, which is the kind of more commercial song orientated side but this, this many people during I mean people like Michael Gearer cites this from Swans yeah from Swans yeah cites this is kind of he's 
his favourite band. This era of Pink Floyd is, is what he draws inspiration from. Um, and once again, you wouldn't necessarily see that in Swan's work, you know, especially mm. not their early work. Um, but that, that's a good starting block, I think, for people to discover that kind of era of Pink Floyd as set of controls. Let's let's move on to Echo's arpeggio beginning. <laughs> It's really frustrating only having 30 seconds. <laughs> it, it really is, especially, especially with this. because you hear the next bit. That's right. I mean, I, in the context of the song, that for me is where the song lifts. That's kind of like, oh, we're going somewhere now. You know, it starts off. And this is when they really, I, the band themselves cite echoes as when Pink Floyd Mark II finally found its feet. Mm. You know, that's when they realised, okay, we can marry, we know how to write songs now. And we know how to do kind of weird experimental kind of stuff. And now we can make this kind of sandwich of those two things, which is what first attract as a, as a I mean, I've been a Pink Floyd fan since I was like, since I could first listen to music, mm. you know, it was, it was, it was my parents listening to Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. And it was the weird noises on those records that really made me, oh, this is, this is really freaky, really weird. It really drew me into that kind of, that, that kind of world, you know. And this is the precursor to that. This is when they realised that you can... I mean, if you were 14 and you were getting stoned, right, and someone played in the middle of Echoes to begin with, you'd be like, oh my God, that's really abrasive and horrible. But Echoes starts off with this kind of like, this ping, ping, and then builds into this kind of almost sort of lullaby, kind of folk, folky kind of song. And then this kind of arpeggio is kind of like da, 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 da. It's sort of leading you into <laughs> this kind of, that's right yeah they're all here we go there's, there's something kind of menacing happening here and then it kind of drops out into this experimental kind of wig out and then builds and it, from that wig out goes into this the, the funkiest floyd of being that young gods clip i played that's like mm. it's just just pure funk you know and then wigs out uh, and then they come back, so it's, they, they, they come back into this kind of folky kind of area again, and that's that's the perfect marriage. That's what that's Pink Floyd in a nutshell for me. The Echoes, that's where it, you know, do you know what I mean? That's, that's yeah, no, it, it's the it, <clears throat> Echo uh, Pink Floyd, the later stuff. One of the things that makes it work is the space in it. Yeah, it's not kind of getting getting ideas thrashed out. Yeah. It's having the confidence just to let things ring for a while, just to let let you know harm harm harmonics of the instruments just do their own thing without having to be actually striking them with a plectrum or whatever all the time and yeah that that's a, a good example of yeah that. and there's a professor of music i can't remember his name and he, he said that that is born from them being architecture students oh so they know what to do with a line so, so, <laughs> so you, the song yeah you know, the beginning of the song is the hallway you know then you get into the grand hall mm. you know and then you're back out into and he said that that that, that that's that all comes that's that they write the kind of music you'd expect architecture students to write, and that that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, no, it does. I've not, I've not heard that before. Yeah. Okay, so sticking with echoes, we've got echoes build. Let's have some of this.
once again. Oh, enormously frustrating. <laughs> I'm sat here, you know, re- ready for it to go. And this is, oh, this is just when they're coming out of the kind of experimental kind of wig out bit. And it's just this kind of, you know, it's just this, it's, it's once again, it's post-rock. Mm. You know, it's quite, it's, 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 it's light into, it's darkness into light. You know, and it's kind of, and it's, it's, you're in this kind of pit of hell in the middle of, you know, <laughs> and then, this kind of kind of lift you out of that, and then you've got this beautiful kind of sort of guitar soliloquy over the top of this this kind of bit of cymbal bashing, you know, and it's it's just lifts you then back out so into this kind of folky it's, ending it, again, you know. It's, it's um, amazing. It's with no overdubs. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Nothing, no, nothing no, at no. all. The, no. the, as far as I know, it genuinely is a live recording. It's not yeah. like. Thin Lizzy going back and replacing all the instruments on <laughs> yeah. their live album. Like famously, uh, Tony Viscotti said, "The only thing that's live on that album is the crowd." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's it's an honest, and and there's only four of them. Mm. Yeah, making that that and and that is that's even more extraordinary. You know, you know, it's kind of to be able to make that sound just with four of them and the very rudimentary equipment they had. And of course, they only had eight tracks. You know, recording live of eight tracks. I've no idea how the drums are mic'd up. I don't want to get too technical, you know, but normally there'd be a track for the bass drum and mm. <laughs> yeah, a track for the snare, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, quite, quite an extraordinary... The, the, part, part of the reason they wanted to record there or the, produ- the director wanted to record there was to, to get the natural ambience of the amphitheatre. And, yeah, I don't want to get too geeky, but with eight tracks, you can't put a lot of microphones like if we if we want to record drums to get like steve albini big drum sound you close mic the drums you have some some mics very close to the the actual kit other mics sort of stationed throughout the the room but already you'd be too many tracks for (laughs) for recording something like that and you forget there there was no echo button in Mm. the studio there was no effects as such you know so Things like Shine on You Crazy Diamond, the famous down, wow, down, down. Mm. They had to, they had to get, get Dave's guitar amp, stick it in a gym hall, effectively, yeah. mic, stick a mic at the end of it, you know, and he had to play in the, in the, in the studio, massive lead, and mic it up that way to get that kind of sound, you know. Um, same with John Bonham's drums, isn't it? In in, in a stairwell. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. Like in a stairwell, you know. Um, extraordinary. So that that that's that that just adds to the charm of this movie. Is the, the the sound is the actual sound. And the Romans clearly thought about acoustics when they built oh, yeah, the yeah. amphitheatre. You know, and it's extraordinary that in AD, I mean, was it, was it Troy AD seventy nine? I think Vesuvius erupted. You know, so um, I, mean, I don't know how long it had been standing up until that point, but to, to have that kind of those kind of ideas back then, extraordinary, really. Let, let, let's carry on because we're, we're we're on an echoes kind of thing. We are, yeah. Again, <laughs> <laughs> damn you! So I believe right. I just, I want to go on to the next clip. Yeah. So we're slight, running a little short on time. So I would go on to the next clip because it, it emphasises what you're saying about about the effects and and say watch watch the thing. You'll see how rudimentary the equipment is. <laughs>
quite yeah. a lot there, isn't yeah, there, there is not Yeah, there is. And um, that, that sound is made, I'm told, by just wiring up Dave Gilmore's guitar pedal the wrong way around. So put the output... Oh, really? Uh, I have heard input, like and, input and the output. And then it's just the natural feedback that creates. And then he's just controlling it with his volume knob, you know. It becomes this kind of this scream, this kind of... Um, and that's used to great effect on the wall, actually, later on as well. There's, there's a kind of few background effects. There's a few kickbacks to the kind of their earlier stuff. It's just incredibly haunting, you know. And especially, you're right, the echo that's created by that in that amphitheatre, mm. you know. Um, it's extraordinary. Uh, and the bed of, you know, the, 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 that, that's what they're saying, I think, that people, Andrew maybe said, people didn't know how they got their sounds, you know. It was, it was a mystery. They were this kind of electronic marvels, you know. And that's just somebody wiring a guitar pedal up there. <laughs> oh, shit, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so let, let's talk about influences. Um, yeah. There are obvious influences that, that we can see in other places from this. Um, I didn't get around to clipping it, but you sent me a video of Beastie Boys. Yes, oh, yes. Um, yeah, their song Gratitude, um, which is from their Check Their Head album, which, if you've not heard Check Your Head, is an extraordinary album um, in the Beastie Boys catalogue. And they were very famously um, big smokers, I guess you'd say. So I, I can imagine that they um, watched Live in Pompeii quite a few times you know, in their youth, despite being predominantly a hip-hop act. And they decided to do this uh, homage to Live in Pompeii, which is, is extraordinary, um, where they even went to the length, I'm told, of uh, actually acquiring Pink Floyd's Amps. Oh, and it, apparently, yeah, they, they yeah. got they yeah. had the actual amps. And, and if you look at, if you look at the, the, part of the kind of the iconic shot from Pompeii is the pan across the, the back of the amps, isn't it? Where you've got it says Pink Floyd, full stop, London. Mm. You know, and the Beastie Boys have, have kind of recreated those shots. Uh, and it's it's, it's 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 completely done with love, isn't it? You know, it's oh, extraordinary. The, the level of detail they've yeah, gone to. Yeah. There's, there's bits on live, live at Pompeii. Where the band are just wandering around a mountain. I mean, it, it, that, there's nothing else. And they stop and they all have a close look at a puddle. And I really <laughs> yeah, like the Beastie Boys yeah. version. They've even got their angle right. They have, yeah. And they've got like the wash going across yeah. the, across the the screen, yeah. like the effect, and them looking at a puddle. <laughs> it's, <just laughs> it's amazing. Absolutely, absolutely great. amazing. Uh, there's something that really struck me about that, and I, I don't know much Beastie Boys I, I got some old bullshit the, the first one when I was a yeah. teenager and I think I probably thought that's what the Beastie Boys were for a long time but there's something about who's singing that one is it Ad Rock yes yeah. there's something about his there's I can't put my finger on it his performance in that is so weird yeah. it's so intense yeah. his whole face is really screwed up yeah and he's got a great voice as well an absolutely astonishing voice you know, uh, yeah. well the way they're all playing yeah. is they're, they're a great band yeah. from well, seeing that I'm going to go go listen yeah. to Check Your Head well, well, MCA the guy's playing bass is apparently the obviously is the, is the, the mastermind behind everything they did you know by, by their own admission you know mm. he, he was the driving force and, and now he's sadly no longer with us which is a bit that, that it's borne out by the fact they've not done anything since he's gone you know mm. Oh, they, um, they said they wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Much, that's right. Yes, I, I think probably more they couldn't. Mm. If I'm being completely honest, and I think um, you know he's he's bass playing on that as well. He was a great musician, you know. Um, but yes, it's it's extraordinary. If you haven't seen it, check it out. So, which other which other references have you got? What for? for I didn't warn you beforehand. No, so no, no. Oh, you you can say none. What you mean for for, for what this concert? Just, just film? the whole aesthetic. <sighs> I think as I said at the beginning of this podcast 
the, they are the most influential, one of the most influential bands that have ever, ever been. You know, I think that so many people's parents had, if your parents were into music, they were probably into Pink Floyd in the 70s, do you know what mm. I mean? And so many musicians growing up listened to that and were drawn to the kind of weird sounds and the noises and, 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 and also the, just the brilliant songs you know, they created. And there's a mystique around them that's never really gone away. You know, despite the fact they're now old and, and, and yeah, <laughs> you know, there's still this kind of mystique around them. Uh, they're very kind of private people with the exception of Roger Waters these days, actually. Um, but even, you know, Nine Inch Nails, A Downward Spiral, you know, I wanted to make The Wall. That's what I wanted to do. You know, I heard The Wall when I was, and I wanted, that's what I wanted to make. And Smashing Pumpkins said the same thing, you know. And I think there's this, there's this kind of, snobbiness about them you know this kind of musicians snobbiness oh I, I, when Gilmore joined I, I lost interest you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah when Dark, Dark Side of the Moon came out I wouldn't, yeah, as soon as they sold a few records I wasn't interested and this is kind of you know this thing that as soon as Sid Barrett left somehow they were no longer this kind of creative force you know and they were just you know this sad old prog band you know that's you can like both of those but I, I love the Sid era for what it is for its charm and it's and I love the kind of more song-based stuff that they did later on, mm. I say. But th this bridge area here, for, for the Pompeii period is my favourite kind of period, really. Um, but yeah, massively influential. So you say it's about, we've talked about Pink Floyd not being their own covers band. When I was doing the, the research for this episode, I did notice there is a Dave Gilmore live Although at Pompeii. There is, absolutely, yeah, there is. Yeah, and they, I mean, what the clearance he had to get to make that but obviously we looked at a world heritage site and boring all those people in and a bit different to the 70s, 70s yeah, exactly like, that's right I think they, they just said they just had to, in the 70s all they had to do was pay a, sl a, a slight a significantly higher entrance fee yes yes well apparently it wasn't it became a world heritage site after ah. the movie um, whether the world heritage was a thing then or not I don't know probably uh, but yeah so there wasn't the kind of rules around you know what he could do there but even i'm surprised that he got permission to amplify music inside that i mean there must have been is there an audience for that one? Oh yeah 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 there is two thousand so people that's even stranger yeah i've just remembered something in get back um, yeah. i couldn't make it through the whole thing i thought <laughs> I yeah, no, <laughs> made it about halfway through the first one yeah yes. this is interesting yeah, yeah, i'm not yeah. going to watch seven hours of it <laughs> i was the same yeah. but in that they're talking about the, the whole premise of getting it dear listener is it's them preparing to make a live album essentially they're going to make an album play the whole thing completely live and there's a long discussion in that about doing it in an amphitheater oh wow okay and that's a couple of years three years before well paul mccartney and john lennon used to go to the ufo club regularly oh really and big big and and the story is that i mean piper at the gates of dawn the first pink floyd album and sergeant peppers were both being recorded in the abbey road at the same time so the story is that pink floyd would go up and have a listen to what, Pete, uh, what the Beatles were doing and nick a bit of that and P the Beatles would go down and have a listen to what Pink Floyd were doing and nick a bit of that so there was, there was a sort of cross-semination between those two records apparently at the time because as I said Sid Barrett was seen as this as the next big thing I mean Pete Townsend you get the UFO covers I've never seen anyone play the guitar like that Wow. you know just just an extraordinary guitarist just the way he played guitar with bottles and all sorts of stuff that you know people just weren't kind of doing well they were doing that but not in London I think you know there's, there's loads of stories around the Beatles recording Sgt. Pepper. When they left, the, the next band booked in, basically used their equipment because the Beatles had synths and stuff <laughs> yeah, that nobody else yeah. had. It's a really famous album. I can't bloody remember. Somebody who went on to being Crosby, Stills and Nash. 
Oh, I don't, I don't know. I want to say it's not Herman's Herb. It's, no. it's, 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 oh, God, there's somebody listening to this somewhere screaming. It's a really famous album. Yeah. But they've since said, look, they couldn't have made it if the Beatles had been better at tidying up after themselves, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> it's like synthesizer cost like as much as a row of houses oh, oh, yeah, yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, said that uh, he, with his first advance, he spent. 30 grand buying a flat in London and 150 grand on a Fairlight synthesizer. <laughs> he could have bought five flats in London for the price of his, of his synthesizer, you know. And it, it's, it was so, such a rudimentary thing. You could do about four things with it, you know, but mm. you kind of had to, had to have it. Kate um, Bush was actually one of the people who, who really dove into the, the Fairlight. Yeah. And there's, there's pictures of her with the manual, which was about a foot thick. But Simon, this has been really good. I really enjoyed this. So I think... If you've got preconceptions about what Pink Floyd are or, 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 or what they should do, you should watch this movie. I think you really should watch this movie. It might not change your mind, but hey, watch it. It's, 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 it's a great piece of cinema, isn't it, I think? Did it for me. It absolutely did. It, it, it started me off on a journey. Okay, I'm going to press the big stop button. I'm going to say goodbye. Would you like to say goodbye? Goodbye. 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 Goodb